Welcome to Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Janflone, and uh, after a break where we did other things, we're back to talk about issues relating to trafficking. How was your uh, podcast break, JJ? Uh, it was kind of magical. I am prepping for my comprehensive exams, which those of you in the PhD world know are the sort of big exams you take to prove that you know the field in general and are not a complete idiot. So I had that. I had a conference. It was great. I spent a lot of time off the internet, which was equally wonderful. But while I was gone, not a day went by. I think that Seth and I weren't messaging each other about, hey, we've got a podcast on X, Y, or Z. Because it seems like every time we go on break is when this administration decides that it's time to do some trafficking-related business. Right. There's been uh, some trafficking laws that have passed this year, and those are Combating Human Trafficking in Commercial Vehicles Act and No Human Trafficking on Our Roads Act, fairly minor laws. And as you might have heard by the time of this podcast, there is one that we're primarily going to talk about today called FOSTA. And the full name of that is the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act of 2017. It is sometimes called FOSTA-SESTA, or some people call it SESTA, which is Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. It just gets all confusing because we'll get into that shortly. Uh, I also had a break from podcasting. I was uh, doing some business trips and... Uh, taking some days off and other things that I do as well with my multiple jobs. And uh, yeah, but it's uh, good to be talking about this again. And this is one, the FOSTA, that uh, we've both taken some time to try to understand. We find it to be a mixed law and uh, we, on one hand really want to have as many tools as possible to fight trafficking. And we've we've mentioned before how there just doesn't seem to be enough laws that are specific to trafficking to fight it. But then sometimes there's laws like this which have other sides which aren't as positive. In this case, potential negative impact on sex workers and also some um, beach regulation concerns. So we'll try to cover it, try to help you understand it, because that's what we've tried to do ourselves, is try to understand it, and we'll go from there. Yeah, I think that this is this is a difficult one, particularly because we have seen survivors of human trafficking who have come out for and against this bill. And one of the things that I think Seth and I have always tried to do is give... Uh, support and be, and be an uplifting voice for survivors. We don't want to speak for them. We want to let them speak for themselves and support their feelings. But I think that this is a good reminder that the survivor community is not this monolith where everyone shares the same opinion or, or the same ideas that this is a community that is actually split on FOSTA, which I can't help but pronounce as FOSTA. I apologize to all of you listening for that. Right. Well, that's a lot easier than Esivasta, which is if you have all the letters. Sure. Yeah. So the announcement on whitehouse.gov, very short announcement, on April 11th, President Donald J. Trump signs H.R. 1865 into law. And then the description is H.R. 1865, the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficker Trafficking Act of 2017 which makes it a federal crime to own, manage, or operate a website with the intent to promote or facilitate prostitution. Now, that alone is kind of confusing since SESTA, the, the one that ended up being partially integrated into FOSTA, was primarily concerned about sex trafficking. And then in the language here, they're specifically saying, hey, this is about prostitution. So that's the, the normal conflation and mixing of prostitution and sex trafficking, where we have divergent opinions out there. Are, are they basically the same? Are prostitutes always trafficked? Do prostitutes actually have agency? When is there a pimp involved? And all those questions that are part of this 
debate. While our field still, in a lot of ways, is split between this whole, is any form of erotic service provision also sex trafficking? Is sex trafficking and erotic service provision different? I come down very firmly that um, erotic service and sex trafficking are, are wildly different things and, and should be treated as such. However, it, it seems like this bill does, I, I think, personally conflate the two a fair bit. Seth may have different opinions, but... Well, with prostitution and sex trafficking, there's a link there. There are people who are prostitutes who are trafficked. Sex trafficking and prostitution, you can see how there can be an overlap. If I could could interject, though, Mm -hmm. for, for me, it's that there's not involvement because I don't think you actually are an erotic service provider if you are a trafficking victim. If you are a trafficking victim, you're a trafficking victim. It doesn't matter what you were forced to do, whether it was stripping or escorting or prostitution or working in a tomato field. I think that the minute you move, or, or in this case, are physically moved into being a trafficking, someone someone who has been trafficked, it's that you're no longer in the erotic service provision industry because you didn't choose it. So for me, the difference is that a trafficking victim is a trafficking victim. And I think when we conflate and we say, well, this person who was engaged in prostitution was a trafficking victim. No, they weren't engaged in prostitution because they were forced into prostitution. So they were a trafficking victim. Whereas this person who's willingly in erotic service provision was engaged in prostitution because they chose to be. Does that make sense, that distinction for me? I think I think that it is, while, while there might be exploitation certainly of people in erotic service provision there also is exploitation of people in the labor force i think wildly so i think when we when we conflate the two and i think don't point out that when you're trafficked it's not that you have a job it's that you're forced to do a job there there is a difference there like linguistically that's important and i think when we don't point that out i i think we kind of engage in a little bit of like passive victim blaming does that make sense or have I just completely lost my mind? There's a possibility. I've been spending a lot of time with books lately. It makes sense, but that's part of what's hard about this is like other industries don't involve sex. And that's part of the issue here is people's view of sex and e- even some people who who are survivors who just think prostitution is like at worst a bad choice. And so you know what, what that means for anyone who like, like and even if it's a choice, it's not a good thing. And, yeah, no, I, yeah. I totally get that because of the stigma associated with sex work and, and the idea of um, just sort of the risk because it is illegal in many places. I totally get that a lot of people who are former erotic service providers, uh, whether they were exploited or human trafficking or they're human trafficking survivors or, or they might have been both because, you know, people don't just stay in one identity their entire lives, you know, people move back and forth. I get that. I totally, I, I totally get why sometimes people will look at it and say like, you know, the erotic service provision industry is a terrible industry to belong in. And that's where I'm, I'm very sympathetic and very conflicted on this idea of there are survivors coming out and saying that this bill is a hundred percent necessary, but then there are also survivors coming out and saying, no, like this, this bill is damaging. I think that this is kind of one where the jury's still out, but as as someone who considers themselves an academic, I have I have to go with with the research I believe in, and I think that that means I have to be objective. And so, objectively, for me at mm-hmm. least, I come I come down with the judgment that there is a there is a distinction there. And if and if someone I and I have to give people agency, and so if people choose to participate in erotic service provision, they choose to participate in erotic service provision, and my personal feelings on the matter can't count. To use a different uh, example, there there's overlap between prostitution and sex trafficking like there is overlap between being an agricultural worker and being a forced agricultural worker. Yeah, and I guess my my problem is, is that we don't talk about it like that. Mm-hmm. Is is my issue is that we don't talk about people who farm avocados as also being easily victimized by Craigslist where there are advertisements to come work in in the agricultural industry. And so for me, then this is very much a stigma thing of that, well, of course, no one would willingly participate in the selling of anything related to sex, even if then the way that those avocados are sold is because they have a commercial with like a really sexy lady 
talking about how avocados keep her fit and trim and beautiful. Which I think is just something interesting that that Professor Destray, Claude Destray, who we talk about all the time because I think we kind of all love him. But just for for me, one of the things that gets me is that it's it's really hard, particularly looking at Western culture, to completely remove sex from any industry. It seems to me that sex is very firmly tied to capitalism, you know, so because we use sex to sell things, whether it's a Carl's Jr. ad or it's like the direct selling of intimacy between two people it just it just seems to me like we we sell sex perpetually all the time just in different different degrees and forms some of which are legal some are not and some of which are more palatable some are not but i could be i again i'm you know fight me someone (laughs) disagree with me send me twitter messages it's just it's complicated it's it's really it's a really really complicated issue so Backpage.com, many of you have probably heard of it. It is a more nefarious Craigslist. There are more than just ads for prostitution on Backpage when it was up. I And I would say maybe that nefarious isn't... I'm sorry, I'm being so combative today. I would say that the Backpage isn't necessarily nefarious. I find... I found, I've always found Backpage to be less sketchy, personally, than Craigslist. Only because... It had a ton of advertisements. If you if you looked at Backpage, very similar to Craigslist, but you could definitely go on there and like buy a nice sofa. I think the difference is, is that long after Craigslist had removed its its adult section, Backpage kept theirs, and that's what gave it this sort of nefarious reputation. But I've certainly, back when it existed, I had used Backpage plenty of times working for the NGO that I that I volunteered for to, you know, post requests for people to donate baby diapers and, and things of that nature and had it go perfectly fine. So just to, just to give a little pushback, although I will say that Craigslist still does run the personal section. Although uh, as of, I think yesterday due to FOSTA, Craigslist has also removed all of its personals. I just double checked that and I just have, but up until then very, very recently, you could still go on and do the whole men seeking women casual encounters which essentially is where you know I, i'm sure there are people who are just using it as a dating service but a lot of people were using it to to set up paid <laughs> encounters but there but were the thing- other, there were other parts of Backpage, so we'll, we'll get into Backpage here so yeah. there, there was a back and forth right before fosta went into effect and you could perhaps call this irony or maybe it was intentional i haven't looked at the aggressiveness of the feds on the timeline, but that uh, the founder, Michael Lacey and others, but uh, Lacey was charged in a 93 count indictment. Yeah. He's not having a good week. (laughs) And there were details on 17 alleged victims who range from adults to as young as 14 years old. So there was a process by which there was a Senate subcommittee investigation and there was a, a subpoena involved and there are some people who will know that well this happened with Backpage without FOSTA being in effect, and therefore do we even need FOSTA? But then the nature of the subpoena is questionable by some. And so Ilya Shapiro, a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, Cato being a very libertarian organization, believes that the actions of the committee were uh, official harassment with the ultimate goal of shutting down something that seems to the government to be unsavory Mm -hmm. and that the subpoena did not identify specific legislative need. There's people who can debate the specifics of that. But once the subpoena happened, regardless of whether one believes it was a valid subpoena, they found out that uh, Backpage was actually involved in editing the ads systematically so that they wouldn't appear to be prostitution and or trafficking oriented. Yeah. And I think that's where we see a very distinct difference. So for those of you who never had gone on Backpage, which is now completely like gone, right? You could go on to an adult section that had a bunch of subcategories. So there was a section for like erotic massage, a section for strippers, phone sex operation, like everything. And then there were even people like me, actually, I've posted on back before, who popped up saying, hey, like, I work for an organization that deals with helping people get out of prostitution or helping people with legal issues who are currently in prostitution. Would you like to submit stories to this online zine that we're running? So it was this weird sort of side 
Backpage, right? But what happened on Backpage in some cases under certain subheadings is that there were trafficking victims who were being sold, their, their services were being sold via, say, under like an escort section. So there would be an ad for an escort and a client who was purchasing it might not know that the person that they were purchasing the services of wasn't engaged in um, prostitution willingly, right? And this included, uh, very upsettingly, uh, several cases of child prostitution, which in that case, if the ad itself was clearly positioning someone under legal age, then I think that if you're purchasing that, you have to know that that's illegal. You have to know that it's inappropriate, right? Like there's no, there's no way that you look at that and go, okay, like, no, this is a, this is, this person's 14. They're posting online. They're, they're legal. That's not how that works. But in the cases of adult victims, clearly there was some ambiguity there. But whereas Seth just pointed out, then the problem is, is that when, if, when Backpage itself, who, who said that they pulled a lot of ads for being inappropriate and said that they handled a lot of, if, if something seems suspicious, you know, contacting law enforcement directly themselves. The problem is, is that if Backpage was modifying these ads not to report them and not to help end human trafficking, but rather to just continue to have ads up there so that they could generate revenue and those ads they modified may or may not have helped in human trafficking, then that's the complicitness, right? If I, if I got this correct, I feel pretty sure. Right. That this this that is where... Well, that's that's the dummies breakdown. <laughs> the standard argument with being a internet platform is that you're providing a service, and what people do on your platform is not your fault. Yeah, and there's a certain degree to which that's fair. Now, like we're we're having debates with Facebook right now over that. Like, where is the line of what they allow that's appropriate? What is the line of harassment or hate or other speech? But there's already limits on that. Like being connected to a foreign terrorist organization is not okay, and people are generally okay with that be not being okay. There are always limits to speech, as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't see a time in history when that's not been the case. However, <laughs> when Backpage went through different phases where at one point they have automatic or, or manage deleton of words or images and just pass on the ads. And then another where they would reject the ads and say, you have to rewrite them because of they're in some way inappropriate. So then people come back and they get rid of what's inappropriate and they submit the ads anyway. And either way, it's, yeah. it's where it becomes more of a nefarious thing rather than we're just offering ads. So the big factor, and this is part of what leads to FOSTA, and I'm going to get into the act shortly, is uh, the F Communications Decency Act, which Backpage used as a, a firewall to say, no, we, we have the right to do this and we're just providing a service and people are doing stuff and it's unfortunate, but you know it's not our fault and we have freedom to do this because the Communications Decency Act makes it so there's not too much federal regulation unless it's certain types of criminality, but we're not doing anything criminal, so it's okay. Yeah. And so even getting information or getting a response or certain documents was difficult. Meanwhile, there was one part of Backpage that was shut down years ago, but then they continued with, uh, was it adult? Well, I think they continued it in the way that, that Craigslist did with sort mm -hmm. of, you know, women seeking men, men seeking women sort of thing or like women and women men and men so i think what happened is they, they mm -hmm. kind of moved it to craigslisted into a personal section oh here we go so they had like an adult entertainment and escort section on Backpage, and that was shut down and they put this big page on which you can find on the internet where it's censored the government has unconstitutionally censored this content protect internet free speech and other things like that but then meanwhile, the back page keeps doing what they're doing, and then there's the subpoena process, and, and then there's people who – some of whom either say they have more direct connection to being victims or other people who believe they're victims, and it's a matter of whether you have concrete evidence or not. But Backpage ends up getting taken down through this other process, and then with FOSTA and SESTA, it's, okay, well, let's make it so this doesn't happen again. 
and that you are some way liable. But that's where it gets confusing for reasons that we'll get into here. And I would like to say, I don't think this is something that Seth and I will be addressing directly. One of one of the things that a lot of people pointed out in the wake of this back page lawsuit is, I mean, you can look at, I'll, I'll link you guys to one that's come out from the Internet Archive and the Cato Institute, that if, if this type of free speech is discontinued on Backpage or prohibited via Backpage and then other sites kind of sign on via Craigslist because they don't want to get sued, then the First Amendment right to free speech and um, the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is kind of the an added section that details what is and isn't allowed in American media that provides protection for inter- internet service providers could could be attacked. So this this could actually be a destruction of internet freedoms done via this back page thing. We're not really talking about that. I think here, I think that's more, that would be something great for like a legal or a media focused podcast or something to that effect. What we're specifically talking about is how this affects human trafficking. So instead we're going to be talking about like victims, uh, survivors, the, the, opinions back and forth on Backpage, and then what sites like Backpage do, sort of this idea that that the trafficking has gone digital. But uh, since JJ brought it up, Electronic Freedom Foundation is one organization that uh, has been against FOSTA, and they are very much on the internet freedom position. I tend to be default to an internet freedom position, but as I've seen more like harassment, death threats, rape threats, Facebook abuse by foreign actors, and so on, I'm a lot less sure about that uh, extreme internet freedom position and internet freedom of speech position, but but it's a delicate dance. And the, the biggest issue, just to, to close off this, this uh, part, is the vagueness of the law, which I'll get into, makes it so people are not sure where the line of liability is, and so they're, they don't want to risk crossing that line, and so they'd rather not deal with it and shut down preemptively shut down opportunities to be sued. Mm -hmm. And that's where the language comes into play and how much, not just you trust people or trust government, but when you can bring civil cases, which this also allows the bar for a civil case is much lower in terms of evidence than a criminal case. And so even having to deal with a civil case can cost money and reputation. And so if you want to play it safe, then it's easier just to say, we're going to cut off certain types of services rather than risk somebody believing us may be liable and us not being clear where we're going to be liable. Exactly. Well, for law enforcement, if a law is written too specific or more spe- or if it's written specifically in a bad way where it's it's actually wrong or it, there's an easy loophole then sometimes having a law that is too specific can go against the entire purpose of the law uh, we had that happen in Colorado where the original one of the original law trying to deal with child trafficking said that the children had to be sold but then when they tried to use it People were saying, "Well, we're not selling the children. We're, you know, we're not saying here's we're going to sell this child for a hundred dollars. No, we're ch- we're selling the child services. So therefore, the law doesn't apply. But technically, that's accurate, even though it's pretty horrible. But that's why a law that's written too specific and not written well can be a problem. But then this law, without defining everything, maybe it could be more useful for law enforcement. But then because it's not specific, it can be chilling of speech." So that's yeah. that concern, and that that is a problem that the language, but that'll make more sense once we get there. And that's yeah. that. <laughs> and then this, and this also has sort of things we've seen increasingly. I've I've seen mentions of this. You know that people are advertising erotic service provision also on like online dating sites like Tinder and whatnot. And so then that produces a sort of issue where are you going to see these or organizations want to start maybe pulling or being being very concerned about their culpability should unfortunately legal actions happen on their platform now to close the back page loop i'll quote a few stats according to the 
the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Backpage was involved in 73% of suspected child trafficking reports it received from the public. And then Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healy said, The vast majority of prosecutions for sex trafficking now involve online advertising, and most of those advertisements appear on Backpage. Now, by quoting those stats, those stats do not mean that Backpage was involved in the majority of sex trafficking because reported and prosecutions are not the same as what happens in reality. But it's still a pretty powerful stat of, based on what we know, Backpage is pretty highly involved. And I also don't know what the dates for those were, but it's it was significant. Online advertising on places like this can be significant. And places like Backpage that people know about could be make it easier for people who want to buy sexual services. But now that it's gone, there's the question of what will be, like, where will people go now? Well, and then that has also turned into, into some critics saying, well, listen, what was great about Backpage was you had people who were in the erotic service industry who, who noticed things because they're insiders in the industry, right? And said, this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem like a person of age. So I'm going to report it. You also had people who were looking for legitimate adults to engage in a transaction with and said, you know, like, I see a kid on here. Like, I'm going to report this. You also have watchdog groups, a number of them who hung kind of like hung out on Backpage and, and trolled it along with Backpage workers themselves. And so one of the fears was by eliminating this community where people felt safe to advertise on, are you then taking actually a tool away from law enforcement where they had a place where they could go and see what was being posted and what wasn't and how? And so since that's been taken away, what does that mean for the the safety of sort of people? It, it did basically law enforcement lose a tool they were using to track trafficking? And including one link to uh, Baltimore police talking about that where yes we we use but we monitored Backpage and now we have to figure out where people are going to go and that's been one of the pro arguments to keep Backpage but I, I don't assume fe- now that their right. owner's been <laughs> charged I don't think that that's gonna it's not gonna stay open I am not shedding a tear for Backpage especially since they were involved in editing ads oh, but yeah 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 no I don't I would like to make it clear. I am not. I am not shilling. I, I would like to make that clear for for them at all. But my concern is that are we are we throwing the baby out of the bathwater? Here here is my fear: is that are we tra- attempting to force erotic service provision into the dark because we don't want to acknowledge it and we want to get rid of it because we consider it and by we I mean like people in the U.S. a moral evil. And so we're hoping to, to just kind of push it, push it away from the public eye. And in the process, are we actually harming trafficking victims? Because we're, again, conflating trafficking and sex work more broadly. And then are we hurting people who are actively engaged in sex work by mischaracterizing them as victims when they're not? Or when they don't see themselves as? And so that's, that's my, my big fear. Well, and while we're there... Well, why don't you just uh, elaborate on those concerns? Okay. Um, so the first one is, I mean, I think I've made it very clear in other podcasts and at the beginning of this one. So I think you have people who are engaged in erotic service provision by choice, and then you have people who are engaged in it by force, right? These two communities end up getting thrown together a lot. And there's lots of reasons for that, and people far smarter and better than I have have, have articulated them including people who work in erotic service provision on this very podcast. So, you know, go, go look at our podcast with Domino. But one of, one of my concerns is when you say that every survivor is, was engaged in prostitution. And when you say everyone engaged in prostitution is, is, is a victim, that's unfair to two groups of people, right? It's unfair to the men and women who engage in erotic service provision by choice. 
who view it as a job and whether they love their job or, or some days they hate their job or it's it's just like the most efficient way to pay the bills we're not going to get into that here but they're they have agency they've made a selection and i think it's super paternalistic and and super inappropriate for other people to look at it and go hey i think that the job that you do is kind of icky you clearly must be a victim that needs to be saved. This is particularly, I think, important because, as, as you and I have talked about, we don't really have anything to save them to, right? Like, there are very few services. There's no funding. So we're, we're just taken away, normally through criminal channels, you know, you've, you've been arrested, your right to make money as you choose. And one, now, note, one, one note is there is not always somebody in the role of pimp, there's yeah, not always exactly. a, a coordinator, manager who is facilitating jobs. And not everyone, and I hear this from people who are engaged in rock service provision all the time, they weren't all abused as children. They aren't all do, like, they, they don't have substance abuse issues, abuse issues. They're not mentally ill. Like, this is, this is a job. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean that it's not a job that people select themselves into. Okay, so like just to give people their credit and their agency and like acknowledge that like, hey, you're an adult, you made a choice. All right, so that's one. Now, moving on to sort of the, the victim survivor issue. I think, as I said at the beginning, it's really inappropriate to say, well, you're a victim, you're a survivor, you were engaged in prostitution. You can be a victim or survivor of labor trafficking. You can be a victim or survivor of labor trafficking who was also sexually assaulted. If you were sexually assaulted, you weren't engaging in prostitution. You were you were a victim of rape or molestation, of, of sexual violence. That's not you choosing to participate in an economic activity that where you're selling like intimacy and other action. That's you being attacked so someone else can profit from it. I don't like saying that survivors of human trafficking who were forced to work in the sex industry were sex workers because I don't think they chose that. It would be like if I, you know, if we have to, to take it to a context, we've talked about like forced child laborers or like forced minors, right? We don't say that these like 42 year old men who've been pulled out of a cobalt mine who, who have suffered terribly, we don't call them professional minors we call them human trafficking labor victims we don't ascribe to them a particular type of profession because they were captured and physically forced at gunpoint to do a particular thing and so i just think that for some reason though when we're talking about sex because we're uncomfortable about it again we broader world sense we smush it all together and i think it's unfair to people who are in erotic service provision by choice i think it's unfair to people who were forced into it and I think it's unfair for people who occupy this middle space where maybe they initially went into erotic service provision by choice, but were either exploited or just had a terrible experience or a terrible time. Their stories are equally valid. I get it. And decided that they are going to leave erotic service provision and speak out against it as a profession. That is also valid. You have the right to share your opinion. I would also speak out very firmly that like waitresses are super and waiters are super exploited. And I would like to speak out against that industry. Like I get it. I get it. The problem is, is that because sex is attached to this, it becomes this big messy thing where we ascribe victimhood to every single person in it. And then if only some great generally, rich white politician could just come in it would all be fixed and managed and there's a lot of weird racial and gender stuff that happens in it too with this idea well specifically we're saving white women um you know that men can't participate as 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 willing members of erotic service provision industry and no, nor can they be victims um this also involves the legal thing. So I'm working on very slowly a project with a colleague of mine looking at exploitation within the porn industry. You know, just because it is a legal form of erotic service provision doesn't mean that exploitation doesn't happen and doesn't mean that there isn't trafficking within that industry as well. 
right? So that that to me is is the is the messiness that exists within this. I feel very strongly that you know for a lot of people erotic service provision is a way to pay their mortgage and feed their kids and pay for their schooling and their taxes. And when you take away legitimate safe ways, you know I'm very much a harm reductionist, when you take away legitimate safe ways for people to advertise their services, you force them to go underground. And as we've talked about, the more stuff is criminalized or the more stuff has to happen in kind of a shadow economy, the more likely it is that people are then exploited or end up in trafficking situations because they feel like they don't have a legal recourse. You know, they can't call the cops if something bad happens to them. They can't sue for back wages. And I think then what happens there is that you have then perpetrators taking advantage of the law that was meant to save people to, to harm them. So I don't know if you have a different perspective, Seth. I know we kind of fall differently. I'm getting like increasingly more like decriminalization militant as time <laughs> goes on. Well, there, so. the, the, there's different factors. There's the the moral, like general, what is what should be moral. Yeah. There's the you know how good is the is the like the prostitution industry, but also, and this is really important. The reason why erotic service provider is a better reason than sex work is sex work doesn't always directly involve having sex. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. Well, and also like prostitution in the United States is usually illegal, I believe. But it is, except in certain areas and in certain forms and certain ways, generally when the mm -hmm. government can get a piece. But. <laughs> not all forms of, quote, sex work, which, again, erotic service providers, not all forms of that are illegal. Nope. And what gets even weirder is shooting pornography is legal. Yeah. No, so you can you can do camming where you have, you know, simulated sex either with yourself or partner or partners. That's legal. Heck, I mean, I know Twitch will ban you pretty pretty quickly but you can basically be semi-naked and be doing a lot of sexually suggestive things on twitch to make money and tips i mean they'll ban you now but there's certainly people who you know or, or youtube streams or whatnot yeah people still definitely try um you can if you are filming having sex with someone for the purposes of of selling and and showing pornography as long as everyone's a legal adult you know that's legal uh stripping legal go-go dancing Legal. Posing naked on top of a car? Legal. <laughs> and then there's this weird thing, you know, sugar babying. Having a spouse or a boyfriend that gives you money for things. It, it just, prostitution ends up fitting in this, or escorting ends up being this really weird side thing. And then there are people who occupy spaces like sort of dominatrixes or other things, or, or the things that they're doing may not be considered sex directly because maybe there's no penetration, but certainly it's a sexualized field it's just such a, a weird thing right. and the fact right. that it's weird and messy is the fact that like you and i both do labor trafficking primarily like labor trafficking is the thing that we're interested in but like i feel like overwhelmingly we end up even though we complain about how everyone in their field focuses on sex trafficking we end up talking about sex trafficking a lot because that's what all the new legislation <laughs> about it or anything that happens in the news is always tied to sex trafficking but that's one of the things we've learned over time, though, is how how odd and inconsistent the laws are in relation to anything sex related. And then, or like on actual, yeah. you know, like the, the the reality of sex work on the ground. I think it's a lot of like people picturing like 1980s in New York prostitution, where there's like roving bands of very scary, like clearly gang oriented pimps and women on like street corners. And, like, certainly that still exists and certainly still happens in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. But I also think that increasingly you have sort of, like, entrepreneurial erotic service providers who, like, are at home and have accountants and, and things of that nature. I think there's also this weird side piece, too, that just from a pure economic standpoint, erotic service provision does seem to be, because of the stigma associated with it, because of, of, of like, the moral quandaries associated with it, and the fact that a lot of times, you know, once you've entered into erotic service provision, there's a lot of dangers associated with it. One, the legal things, but also, like, 
if you use it to put yourself through school and then you're even if you're it's stripping a perfectly legal form and you go to be an elementary school teacher and a parent finds out you know you could lose your job a lot of jobs have sort of morality contracts and things of that nature so i think that the the price of getting involved in erotic service provision is like the risk price is quite high and and getting out as i think is it's is far more difficult than say like if you worked in like the food industry right so I think part of that too is that it's not it's not an industry that's like easy necessarily to to leave, but that a lot of people will look at as, well, if I'm willing to take this risk, it's either because a, I really want to do this as a profession. This is something that I think I'd be good at, or or I, I'm 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 intrigued by, you know, the possibility for you know to do well financially or, or something to that effect. Or the other thing is you get into it because you're like I absolutely need money this is one of the few options available to me where I can make a particular amount of money like per hour or or with a particular type of labor. And so I think that happens too. Mix that in with sort of U.S. feelings on prostitution and the fact that, you know, we love a good, what is it? Um, Julia Roberts, pretty woman. We love a good pretty woman narrative, right? You know, clearly anyone in prostitution wants to be saved, but I think it all becomes a mess. Well, we have competing narratives on labor and what the value of labor is and having a job can be dignifying. Yeah. And, oh yeah. Well, it's not always dignifying. I've had a job or two that <laughs> I didn't feel particularly <laughs> dignified at. Oh dude, I have jobs now where I'm like, but I went to school. <laughs> it, it's good to do something productive. I, I, so, so like we have narratives of, Oh, people are taking jobs, you know, China's taking jobs and, Immigrants are taking jobs and what what have you that there's not enough jobs. There, there's, there's, there's that narrative. But then there's also a narrative of everyone should have a job because of dignity or because you don't want to be lazy and therefore you need to get off welfare and have a job. But then a lot of jobs don't actually pay that much. And all the, these narratives are not all consistent, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and there's, so such, and there's such difference between one person's experience to the next. And so, okay, you need to go and you need to get a job. And then here it's, well, yeah, but not that one. Yeah. And and, and also, yeah. too, you know, I think sex work, uh, like erotic service provision, I think it appeals, too, to people who are, like, you know, who might not be able to get, you know, how, how many people have you and I sort of anecdotally interviewed or talked to who are, like, listen, like, I, I have, an in, like, a back injury. I can't, I can't stand up and work all day at, like, a Walmart. And I need a certain amount of money to live that I'm not going to get any other way. I can I can do this and be in charge of myself. You know, I'm still using my body the same way I'd be using it if I was in construction. And whether you agree with that or not, whether you agree if that labor is different, I think in that in that case, when it's a person making a decision, it's a little bit different. But I mean, you and I are yeah. also doing a podcast that comes from a very particular religious perspective where... Yeah, well, I... I... <laughs> I would rather there were more good paying jobs and I suspect less people would do prostitution and similar things if they could make an equal amount of money doing something else. Well, yeah. That's and, an opinion. And, that's, but, you know, and I think, I think Elle talked about that in our decriminalization podcast or sort of that, that perspective on it where she, I think, I think to, to quote her and if not, it's from another time that I've talked to her about it, but literally like, Hey, like, you know, if you don't want people to, to do this, maybe pay for health care. <laughs> maybe pay for child care. But- maybe pay, you know, like it's it's one of those things where it's it's a similar argument where they're like, well, we don't want homelessness. But we also don't want to do any form of economic reform. We don't want to do any sort of treatment of illness. And it's like, well, then you're going to kind of have to deal with the fact that there's homelessness. Like it, it's, it's that issue. And I know I'm being kind of flippant about it and not really going into it, which I shouldn't do for a academic podcast but like gosh darn it right and and to to express my my economic bias i i think both socialism and free market liberalization can be utopian like if we have government services for everything it might not work if we just have a total free market on everything it also might not work and there therefore i might you know offend a bunch of people but no, I believe I believe it takes no, a hybrid. I'm with, I'm with you, actually. I believe it takes 100%. a hybrid system, in that you can't just be ideological, and you have to think what's what's going to work. We need to test it, and 
if you leave everything up to a system that says we're going to pay you as little as possible except for a combination of your skills and the supply and demand of those skills, but we're also mm-hmm. going to compete continually look for ways to have less skilled labor. And also sort of this weird moral or cultural feeling about work. Because, for example, we always need more teachers, right? We never have enough teachers. But we consistently in the United States pay teachers below what we should because of this idea that teaching's a vocation and you should do it out of love. And then we're shocked when teachers go on strike. Just remember so, so listening that, to but, Edward James almost live. He's uh, Admiral Dama on Battlestar Galactica and stuff. Uh, yeah, Captain! He's great. He had to say, so say we all, and we all did, and it was cool. But anyway, that so somebody right was now. telling him that, uh, oh, well, you know, she's she's only like a preschool teacher. She's only a kindergarten teacher. And he's like, only, like only shaping young minds. We should, yeah. Like it's a, it's a big deal to train the next generation. <laughs> Weirdly enough, actually, I would say that his show – handled this issue quite well not the issue of prostitution but handled this issue quite well with i don't remember the episode number it's it's been a while i'm probably due for a rewatch but when it's all the people who are working on the gas supply ship mm-hmm. and then all the people who are in command and they're like listen like five generations from now my kids are still gonna be slinging gas and your kids are gonna be running things I'll, I'll I'll figure it out and I'll and I'll include the IMBD <laughs> in this, but it's but it's a great it's a great episode because it's literally economic theory of of generational wealth and status and them trying to solve it while also being at war against Cylons. It's a lot going on in that show. We should do slavery in Battlestar Galactica sometime. I do like Battlestar Galactica. So. Okay, according to my husband, who's very nerdy and in the corner, it was. Season three, episode 16, title name, Dirty Hands. There we go. But yeah, but no, and I think, yeah, what labor is valued and what is not. I mean, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs has talked a ton about how we complain that we don't have enough people performing, you know, uh, labor in this world. Like, we don't have enough mechanics. We never have enough welders. We never have enough plumbers. But when kids say, hey, I'm going to be a plumber, we're like, no, that's a bad idea. You should go to college. I don't I mean, agree with Mike Rowe and everything, but on that, uh, no, like, I to- wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, no, he and I have, have a contentious relationship. I will say he makes a very good stain remover. Mm. <laughs> I will give them that. So we include some links to the people who are to some people who are supportive of FOSTA. Mm-hmm. And that includes National Organization for Women in New York City. World Without Exploitation, Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, uh, linking to a PSA that includes Seth Meyers and Amy Schumer. So, you know, you have people on a spectrum there. Mm-hmm. There, uh, There's a link to some people who were at the White House, including somebody named Jessica. They were at it for the signing. So she feels closure with this lobbying past. Uh, she said that she was paid for sex over 150 times when she was 15 years old, and she firmly believes that Backpage made it possible. And uh, then there's an interview in Feminist Current with uh, Marion Hatcher, who is a survivor, and uh, she is very much in favor of the law. And there was a campaign she references called Hashtag Listen to Survivors. There were survivors who came to Capitol Hill and uh, talked to the House and Senate and, uh, in leading up to SESTA and FOSTA being, being passed. And uh, like she says, this illegal marketplace requires visibility in order to function. While a small piece of the sex buying market may go to the dark web, the online marketplace has to be accessible to buyers. It cannot thrive if it goes deep underground where people cannot find it. So that's her perspective, and, and there's, there's some validity to that perspective at least in terms of if it's harder for buyers, that you might see a reduction of buyers through that means. But uh, sellers are uh, pretty creative in uh, doing business models. W- with law enforcement and things like this, the, you know, mitigation is an important concept, like making things harder. I mean, that applies to lots of things, at least in terms of the question, like to what degree do you make things harder? And making things harder might reduce the likelihood 
Would, and I would I would like yeah. to point out for everyone who's sort of treating this like this is this is a, like in some ways this is a great moment, right? Because whether you're for it or not, like we actually had we had survivors in the White House giving their opinion and being heard and being referenced on national television and getting their voices out there. And so even though I'm not, I think that this is not the saving grace bill that it's it's being portrayed to be like an ending of sex trafficking. I don't think that's what this is at all. Personally, but I, I am very happy that we actually got to physically see survivors in person and got to hear their voices and got to have them there. And mm-hmm. this was something that some survivors were fighting for. And so I think that's great. I do, however, think that there needs to be acknowledgement that there are also survivors who say, I don't like this. I'm, I'm, I'm not down for this. I don't feel that this represents me appropriately. We are not a monolithic Borg who agrees on everything. And, and I think there's just a tendency almost to sort of like fetishize the survivor community and, and put them all together as one big thing. Right. And that last one was on Feminist Current. There are a number of fe- feminists who are ardently anti-prostitution. And that's a debate within feminism. What isn't a debate within feminism? <laughs> well, it depends who you ask. If you ask people who, you know, like alt-right what they think of feminism, it's only one thing. Oh, that's true. Feminism is is not, as I've been learning about it over the years, I can state categorically, it is not one thing. And not only that, lots of feminists don't hate men, believe it or not. I I, I know a lot of feminists, and I think they're wonderful. And I don't don't feel the least bit hated. I mean, well, you weren't at the last meeting, so... True, I don't... You uh, didn't hear the inside scoop. We decided that that men who wear suits were just not cool with. But then I got kicked out. Hmm. Just kidding. Before, you know what? I will say I haven't been called a feminazi on Twitter in like over a year. I almost, I miss it a little bit. Well, now that you've said that. I know, right? I'm just, now I'm going to get a bunch more. Maybe I just won't get any because maybe people have moved on from that title. Probably. I mean, people like to use social justice warrior. But uh, Craigslist has shut down their personals at this time. Reddit closed down its escorts message board. City Vibe and Night Shift have shut down their online services and erotic review they're they're blocking their u.s internet users so that's how some people are operating uh how it may relate to forums is a little more iffy and uh it'll make more sense once i get into the law which i'm about to do but uh, one, one of the the questions about this is not only like sex workers but if people are posting about this and maybe asking for help or just discussing it online, like discussing their situation or their past, will that be affected? And I don't know, but they're raising that question. So, okay. The law. H.R. 1865, which was the House one. SESTA was in the Senate, and the FOSTA in the House incorporates some of SESTA. And it amends Communication Act of 1934, Section 230 which already has some limitations. And those limitations are, and I'm linking to 230, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or availability of material. So there's the good faith. Doing some monitoring. So, So 230 is meant to give providers some freedom and to not be liable for everything that's on their platform. But that doesn't impact criminal law, doesn't affect intellectual property law. It doesn't keep states from enforcing state law. And it doesn't necessarily affect privacy law. And what FOSTA does is it adds a number five, which is no effect on sex trafficking law. Mm-hmm that with current sex trafficking law, there's three notable additions here, that any claim in a civil action brought under 1595 of Title 18, it allows a state's attorney general to bring civil cases. It allows criminal prostitution under state law, under the Mann Act, which the Mann Act is the anti-prostitution law federally. And that's man with two ends. Yes, there's there's the irony or coincidental, depending on whether you want to. <laughs> it's ironic, don't you think? Uh, Just a little bit, a little bit ironic. 
Although you can question whether anything is truly ironic in that song, which is part of what's ironic. I know. That's the for all of you who are who are not old like us. <laughs> there was this artist called Atlanta the Morissette. One time she gave, she dated the guy from Full House. It was Uncle Joey. Which is an interesting choice that she made. Anyway, don't worry about it. You don't need right. to know. And she has a song ironic, but really It might not no, be ironic. Nothing is really ironic in the song, and so that's part of what's ironic. And then the last one is any charge in criminal prosecution brought under state law if the underlying charge is violation of this other section, which is relating to sex trafficking criminally. Now interactive computer service. We, we we've heard that reference. So that's means, I'm going to quote, any information service system or access software provider that provides or enables computer access by multiple users to a computer server, including specifically a service or system that provides access to the internet and such systems operated or services offered by libraries or educational institutions. That is incredibly vague and far-reaching language. Yeah, it's there's a lot happening in that that's not specified mm-hmm. and that makes me nervous so i don't know all of the legal like anything that may have applied to this after so i'm not talking about this legally but talking about this in terms of what i know about the computers and the internet which is quite a bit since i've worked in the industry for a while everything is pretty much computer mediated now phones are highly digitized but also anything that's voip based on my understanding of, of reality of, of computers, like Skype applies. When everything is run by computers, well, is everything an interactive computer service? Well, and then, and we haven't talked about this at all, but I, I know that there's definitely sort of this this sort of concern. You know, Facebook is part of Prism. It's come out that also Facebook was selling details and, and messages and things of that nature. You know, does this mean that people who are engaged in erotic service provision who are who are selling services via Facebook are they now at risk, or is this something where we can use to capture traffickers by seeing what they were doing, or is it all of the above? What's happening? What's the difference? Mm-hmm. And so this is it's a it's a very complicated situation. There is section. Section 3 of 2421, Promotion of Prostitution. So I'm not going to read everything, but I'll I'll read the relevant part here. So basically, whoever owns, manages, or operates an interactive computer service or conspires or attempts to do so with the intent to promote or facilitate the prostitution of another person shall be fined under this title, imprisoned, etc. And it applies retroactively. Whoever owns, manages, or operates an interactive computer service, well, that's pretty far-reaching, so it's not just the owners. I mean, does that mean if I'm hosting a website for a client, does that count? So so there's that part. And then it's about intent to promote or facilitate prostitution of another person. So then it's not primarily about sex trafficking. Then it apply. we have these strong laws that are applying to prostitution. So what does it mean, then, to have the intent to promote or facilitate? There's some who would say, why would you worry about it? Like, this is only if you have the intent, and how could you possibly be against it? Because it's only about people who intend to promote or facilitate. And on the surface, there's a point. There's a valid point there. But what does it mean to have an intent to promote or facilitate? That is the underlying question and concern that is written into this and the fact that it's focusing not on sex trafficking exclusively but also on prostitution and we will see but as we've said some places are just preemptively avoiding it because they don't want to go to jail and so that's that's a side problem because this is then a are you participating with good intentions bad intentions is is this another way to to make money you know is this this is going to come across really mean. Is this just another way for people to make money off of human trafficking? And is this vague enough that it's going to apply to more than online advertising? And if you want to know what Congress understands about computers, listen to some of the the interview um, with Mark Zuckerberg where you have Orrin Hatch asking how Facebook makes money. 
Yeah, and then there's also the side point where they're they're begging him basically to do favors for their constituents in their hometowns. That's a side problem. So my issue with the law, I'd rather it be focused on sex trafficking. It's not. It's focused on sex trafficking and prostitution. And in terms of law enforcement having as many tools as possible, I can understand it from that point of view. Mm-hmm. But that's why it's concerning to people who are in the erotic service provider industry. And with the vagueness of even what is what is, what is a interactive computer service. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, Skype, FaceTime. I mean, all of these things. And so are we also going to have a thing where we see sort of like these, you know, is, is a website like Pornhub going to go, have to go down? Well, and, our, and like the eight bajillion ones that are essentially that. Or is facilitating prostitution via Skype going to land somebody in jail? And is yeah. Skype going to have to be monitored? I don't know. And maybe there's legal checks or interpretations that would limit interactive computer services to other things. So that's where it's at. It's a well-intentioned law, and they're being able to subpoena a place like Backpage to see whether they're actually intentionally and actively facilitating and promoting or not. I can see that. But it's not specific enough, and that's where this could be abused and where some people are, are just worried about it. So that's kind of where it's at. So I feel like with so many things where that we talk about on this podcast, we're like, we like that it's happening, right? We're not, we're not unhappy that there's legislation happening surrounding human trafficking. Cause it's been so long since that has happened. <laughs> what we're unhappy with is, is the vagueness and the fact that it might be used for other things. And that it might be harming populations that we like to try to help. So hopefully that was helpful. That was not meant to give a single answer because we don't have a single answer. And it's really too early. This law was just signed this week. Yeah, there is also the question of two, which I don't think we talked about, but we have talked about on other podcasts where we've talked about legislation. While we are seeing moves made against uh, Backpage and we are seeing other websites similar to Backpage taking, I, I would say, probably preventative action. We don't know, like, how well-funded is this going to be? Is this actually going to be something that continues to be used? Because uh, not all the time. Uh, is that is that true of human trafficking legislation? A lot of times it gets created and publicized, and then it's gone, and we never hear of it again. Well, the update to the Tariff Act of 1930, where... It doesn't seem to be really be being used. No, it's there. It was used once or something even like the tip department, which is the, the trafficking in persons department that prevents the tip, puts out the tip report that we've talked about on this podcast and, and, you know, in other ways before that is chronically underfunded. You know, it exists there. Is it actually used to the extent that I think it should be? No. And the part that really gets us riled up here. Okay, people are celebrating that there's a new law passed that can be a tool to fight sex trafficking. But the primary landmark legislation, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which we did a podcast on this year, has not been reauthorized. There appears to be no action. Nope. I did contact my congressman about it a few days ago. Because you're awesome. And I would encourage all of you to do that, to say, okay, Trafficking Victims Protection Act has not been reauthorized. There is funding attached. What's happening with it? And so I'm not going to celebrate Congress or the Trump administration or the State Department under which the tip office is, if they're not even making a visible effort to reauthorize the landmark legislation and the funding attached to it. Yeah. So so essentially, I think what we're asking is, is this a photo op in some ways now? Well, it is, but they're always photo ops. doesn't mean they're only photo ops, but that's where we're at. And... Uh, If the cases that are brought with this are very strategic and limited, then this could end up being a useful tool. But if they're not... 
I just, I worry too much that the things that we say are, are going to help people are going to end up harming them. And I think that this is, this is a thing that in, in the IR field, especially, but like, whether you do IR directly or you do development or things like that, like, I think you have to be very cautious about what you engage in. And so I will say, I'm really glad you mentioned the hashtag, you know, listen to survivors because we should be doing that no matter what. I just question if that happens as much as it should. And and that's kind of where I fall, which is unfortunate. Because I would like to be so, wouldn't it be great to go back like five or six years, Seth, when you and I were first getting into this and we were all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and immediately believed everything was going to be better? Wouldn't that be a fun moment? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't that's, that be fun to do again? Yeah. Uh, also linked to a podcast on 1A with Josh Johnson, uh, 1A interviews multiple people and he's one of the more balanced podcasts out there and he did one on march 26 called missing from me Too: sex workers where he talks with mm. people in the industry and also they talk a bit about fosta sesta so if you want to hear that perspective uh give that podcast a listen good good mention seth and that's that uh so you know always contact your congress people even though Congress has low ratings, contact them anyway and uh, make your voice heard. And Don't yell and curse at them. They don't like that. Uh, it may make you feel better in the moment, <laughs> but I don't recommend it. Maybe it'll matter. We have to all tell ourselves that, that maybe it will matter. Yeah. I've gone, I've gone to a few like presentations and things where I thought it wouldn't matter. Like me talking to people. And then it ended up like actually like having having an impact. Like we saw them sort of a particular guy change change his opinions on a particular piece of legislation, in part because of stuff that had been said during meetings and during like letter writing campaigns and things that we did. So you have a representative democracy if you're in the U.S. Use it. A lot of people don't, and that's why I recommend like don't don't just like send a tweet or a subtweet if if you feel like your emails aren't being respected or your phone calls. You know, physically writing something and paying for a stamp sometimes actually has a really big impact. Really big. I think just because they get them so rarely. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We hope that was helpful. It's a lot to cover. It's complicated. Human trafficking. It's complicated. And give me my doctorate now. (laughs) All right, guys. Keep the faith. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.